I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. I just want to give you a heads up that this episode will contain stories of rape and assault. In December of 2012, there was a horrific incident of sexual violence in India's capital, New Delhi. You may remember hearing about it. Jyoti Singh was beaten, tortured, and gang-raped by six men while boarding a bus with her friend. The violence was so terrible that she died two weeks later, at only 23 years old. And the news spread fast. Delhi has again lived up to its name of being the rape capital. The December 2012 gang rape in New Delhi led to a huge public outcry. Hundreds of people attended events to remember a woman who has come to symbolize a national campaign against sexual violence. Today, we're talking about what happened in the seven years since Jyoti Singh's death. Immediately afterwards, she became known across India as Nirbhaya. It means fearless. Within the year, the men who raped her were arrested, convicted, and sentenced to death. Though those executions have been planned and postponed three times already this year. And repeatedly since 2012, we've seen protests against sexual violence and rape culture in India. Clearly, Jyoti Singh's story sparked a national conversation. But are women in India any safer for it? Kalpana Sharma is with me today to help unpack that complex question. She's a journalist who's been covering women's rights in India for decades. People talk about that 2012 case as a watershed moment in India. Is that how you see it? It was a watershed in some instances, but, you know, the trouble is public memory is so short that people forget that, in fact, the uh, entire discussion on rape and the need to change the rape laws uh, began in the 70s. 1972, when a tribal woman called Mathura went to the local police station to report a crime. Instead, she was held back and the two policemen on duty raped her. And when her case finally reached the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court dismissed the charges against the policemen and said that this woman was habituated to sex. That's the word they use. Wow. And that she didn't struggle enough. And therefore, uh, she probably wanted it and did not. she was not actually raped. What Kalpana just described isn't unique to India. For generations, women around the world have been blamed for assaults against them. But for many women in India, Mathura's case was the last straw. And they took to the streets. In the 80s, we only had print media. And there was radio, which was controlled by government. And the beginnings of television, again, government controlled. So you did not have this wall-to-wall coverage that is possible today. So the women in the 80s had to come out on the streets. There was no other way for them to draw the attention of the government. They agitated to the point where the government had to then change the law uh, so that if the survivor says that she did not consent uh, to the act, then her word has to be taken unless proven otherwise. If policemen assaulted or raped a woman in custody, then for that custodial rape, they would be charged and sent to at least seven years in prison. And the other thing was that also rape trials had to be held in camera. You know, they would not be public trials, which again gave some protection to the survivor 
to be able to go forward with her complaint and not get intimidated. There is still a lot of intimidation that takes place and there are still many, many women. In fact, majority, I would say, do, still do not report sexual assault or rape. But I think the changes in the law have helped at least a new generation of women to find the courage to go ahead and report. It's interesting you mentioned the trials being held in secret. And so just an aside for our audiences, it's also part of the reason why in Indian media, rape victims aren't named. And so that's why we have the name Nirbhaya, which is what people were calling yeah. the woman who was attacked uh, and killed in 2012. So I want to go to that case because there is no chance that anyone could argue that the evidence wasn't there. In the CCTV footage that's been released by the police, you can see a white brass that crosses the camera on Sunday night just after 9 p.m. Police say they've also found an iron rod that the two were beaten with. The girl is now on a ventilator, battling for life in hospital. Can you talk to us about the significance of how violent that attack was and what that, that meant for people? Yeah, I mean, the rape was horrific, but let me just put it in a in a larger perspective. As I said, it took place in Delhi. Delhi is the capital of India. She and, and the man she was with, you know, they were rescued and they were taken to a hospital. So the story reached both the police and the media. And it was extensively reported. And, you know, through leaks from the police, the extent of her injuries came to be known. She was admitted here in the ICU. She continues to be on the ventilator. Doctors say that she's got blatant wounds and injuries on her face and on her abdominal. But the result will be only seen in a couple of hours. And I think this is what incensed a lot of people that in the capital, a woman cannot go out to see a movie uh, with a friend uh, without being assaulted in this way. So it was horrific in every sense. But let, I'm just saying the perspective that I think we need to have, which was something that was brought out even then, is that this kind of case, because of its location, was something that made all of us aware of the way in which women can be brutalized. But women are being brutalized in many other places where the media has no reach and no interest. For instance, the people who belong to what is called the lowest caste uh, call themselves Dalit. Uh, Dalit means oppressed. The number of crimes against Dalit women in India is horrendous. And it never even reaches a police station, leave alone the media. And the kind of crimes that take place against women in our conflict zones, you know, in Northeast India, in Kashmir. So horrendous as that case was, I think we must keep that perspective that there are many crimes that are equally bad often even worse, that are not reported. That's actually a really important point for us to note. The Indian government itself says that only 20% of rapes committed in India get reported. And in 2018, that amounted to 34,000 cases, a small increase from the year before. The laws passed after Nirbhaya's case were supposed to prevent all this, or at least lower the incidence rate. Kalpana tells us that, at the time, a committee was formed, led by retired judge J.S. Verma, to recommend changes to the law. The national government at the time reviewed the committee's suggestions and passed certain laws in response. It made stalking, acid violence, and voyeurism, which is spying on a naked woman, crimes. One new law specified that the absence of physical struggle doesn't equal consent. 
And another law sentenced police officers to up to two years in jail if they fail to file a report of sexual assault. All very radical changes in theory, but there was one glaring flaw. What they did not address is regardless of what changes you bring in the law, the implementation of the law is the most important thing because that is where the actual failure takes place. So one of the things the Justice Verma Committee uh, recommended is when a woman goes to a police station and reports a crime, if the policeman on duty does not pay heed to her complaint, then he should be penalized. And uh, in fact, action should be taken against him. And this was in the law. But despite it being in the law, in fact, today, still the same thing goes on. When poor women go who have, you know, no social capital, uh, frankly, in a police station, they're just not heeded. They might as well not have gone there. Hundreds of protesters gathered outside the headquarters of New Delhi police to voice their anger at yet another rape in India. The victim is a five-year-old who was held... The 16-year-old was allegedly gang-raped twice over two days in October. But the family Detectives collect evidence from a charred roadside in Uttar Pradesh. Hours earlier, witnesses say a 23-year-old woman was doused in petrol and set on fire. Police say she was a rape victim and was on her way to give evidence in court against her alleged attackers. That's the sad part of the whole thing. Uh, there are lots of things that need to change in the whole implementation of our criminal justice system which, in my view, is a broken system. Mm -hmm. uh, and it does not serve the interests of the poor and the most marginalized, including of women. Some activists say a lot of these programs, a lot of these initiatives and what they're hearing from officials is that women are the ones that are being told to change their behavior to avoid sexual violence. Do you think that, that is a legitimate criticism? Yeah, I think it's a genuine criticism. Because, for instance, let me tell you that even after the 2012 rape, for instance, the narrative was that the public space is dangerous for women. I would never prefer my daughter to study in a Delhi University because I'm too uh, protective about her and uh, I can't take any risk because education, I think she can do at home also. So how should women protect themselves? By basically staying at home and not going out, you know? and uh, all kinds of things about how women dress and how they behave in public. They shouldn't attract attention to themselves. Otherwise, what happened to this girl could happen to them. They shouldn't go out late. You know, so ultimately you're telling women that you have to save yourself uh, because society will not change. A new law was made in this country. A lot has changed. But if there's one thing that hasn't changed, it's our society. It's very important to change that. This change will happen only from within and nowhere else. So Kalpana, this is a big question, but I want you to try your best. Yeah. Because if the laws are in place, why isn't why why aren't they implemented? Uh, exactly. Well, not, not not even just implemented, but is there a more systemic cause or reason for why we keep seeing attacks like this and the ones that we're not seeing? What would you point to? So, you know, as I said, a law can work, can only go so far in any country. Yeah, there has to be societal change to actually make any kind of progressive law effective. And in India, that change is occurring, but very slowly. And it's, it's very slow because just like the caste system is deeply embedded, so is the system of patriarchy. And simply put, that means men grow up to feel a sense of entitlement 
that they are born to to rule and make decisions and uh, that women must be subservient and as far as protecting women is concerned they feel as men it is their right to protect their women you know their women will be their mothers their sisters their daughters etc but any other woman is fair play and if that other woman also is independent minded is doing what she wants to do as more and more women are beginning to do then it draws out this anger that who are these women who are doing this the law puts girls in a stronger position everywhere in india it's the women who rule we men are nothing so it's it's a lot of anger against women asserting their rights that also comes out in the kind of crimes that are taking place particularly of young women in in urban areas uh, i think the struggle of uh, feminists and women's groups in india has has been basically to tackle the core issue which is this issue of patriarchy and women's status the term patriarchy is sometimes used so loosely that it can be hard to understand what that means on a day-to-day basis Kalpana says it affects the way women are treated at every stage of their lives, starting, in fact, even before birth. Because patriarchy is so embedded, most families still want a son because they want inheritance to go to the son. They don't want it to go to a daughter because they believe the daughter marries out of the family. I think that a girl is a burden. However, the man is a stick of support for the family. Kalpana says that strong preference for sons meant many Indian parents were getting abortions if they found out they were going to have a daughter. India's gender ratio started to fall. In some states, there were only around 800 women to every 1,000 men. It got so bad that in 1994, the government passed a new law. It's now illegal for doctors to even tell parents the sex of a fetus. But in some parts of India, sex-selective abortions still happen. Biologically, women are stronger and they outlive men in all, you know, advanced (laughs) societies, you find it. But in India, this was happening only because a girl could not be born. And if she was born, there was a study done in Lancet a few years ago, which showed that after they were born, they were neglected. So the ratio of girls dying was much higher. And so femicide is just another example of how patriarchy in India hurts women, even as the law tries to protect them. Sex-selective abortion is illegal in India, yet it still happens a lot. Women are still not recognized as having equal rights in this country, even though it's in our constitution. I mean, our constitution, in fact, is far in advance of many other constitutions in the world. But in actual fact... In the most important decision that a woman makes in her life, which is who to marry, when to marry, and whether to marry, Uh, Indian women on the whole, the majority, do not have a choice in that. So to me, that is indicative actually of how little has changed. And I think what we are seeing in India today is in a way a society in transition where because of technology, Uh, You have access to uh, all kinds of tools. You know what is going on around the world. You have aspirations that are built up as a result. But deep down, there is still this conservative society which wants its women to behave themselves and do not want them to transgress that. And when women do, then it brings out this anger against them. When we talk about the underlying mindset, what role would you say that the government 
is playing or should be playing in changing these attitudes. And I'm thinking specifically of just one program. The administration of Prime Minister Narendra Modi launched a program called Beti Pachao, Beti Padao. It translates to save the daughter, educate the daughter. It was specifically looking at femicide and infanticide. What do you make of programs like that? Uh, first of all, let me say it's got, it's, it's got a nice catchphrase, but it's not new. You know, this effort at uh, education for girls has been a long effort over many administrations. And it has made a dent even earlier. Uh, and I think uh, Ms. Uh, Narendra Modi is very good at marketing these things. But just as the, the battle to change the rape law didn't start in 2012, the struggle to educate girls in India did not start when uh, Narendra Modi was elected in 2014. So, yeah, this has been a long struggle. And, you know, many NGOs have also played a very big part, actually, in trying to change uh, mindsets. It's not just the government. The government has brought in laws and it has policies, which is a good thing. But again, these things cannot work unless uh, civil society also participates in trying to bring about these changes, which is we trying to do in India. There are some incredible, albeit isolated, civil society programs tackling this issue. Textbooks across the country have been changed to reflect more progressive attitudes on gender. Some organizations, like the Pune-based Equal Community Foundation, specifically meet with teenage boys to talk about sexuality, consent, and mutual respect at that important age. Other NGOs help girls develop their sense of self-reliance. The good thing is that more and more people are finding ways Uh, to get these things across, to work with girls, give them the confidence, you know, fight for them to be out in the public space. And one of the most remarkable things in the last five to seven years has been the number of women in sports in India who are all winning many more medals than the men are, you know, and in non-traditional sports, you know, in, in boxing, in wrestling, in weightlifting, In journalism, I know that many of us, when we began, there were many beats we could not do. Now women are doing all the beats from sport and defense and everything onwards. So, you know, to me, these are hopeful signs, you know, that it's it's a struggle. But despite it, something is breaking through. In researching for this episode, one of our producers, Dina, came across the story of India's so-called lady cops. Al Jazeera had exclusive access to one police station in India's north that's run by women. Hi, Dina. Hey, Malika. So, Dina, I remember watching this documentary gather so much attention online when it came out. And that's because its lead character is so striking. For those who haven't had the chance or the honor of seeing this doc (laughs) yet, what's it about? So the documentary focused on one specific station that was located in Sonipat, which is in the northern state of Haryana. And it came about after the Delhi rape case in December of 2012 that we discussed in this episode. And this particular story follows one police officer whose name is Parmila Dalal. And she's the senior house officer, which kind of means that she's just the second in command. And what I loved about her story is that it starts with her at home and then you're following her throughout the entire day. So there's this one part where Pamela was interacting with her in-laws and specifically her mother-in-law, who kind of jumps in with such pride and she says, Pamela is a police officer. <laughs> you know, how she solves the world's problems and she does the job of a son. 
And it just kind of, you see both sides of that. You see how she's proud, but at the same time, it speaks to the patriarchy that Kulpana was just telling us about in the episode. So this documentary is called India's Lady Cops. What makes these units unique? So this is actually my favorite part of the documentary, and it's when they talk about the Scooty Girls. And it's basically police women who kind of throw on their gear and their helmets, and they ride around in these scooters, which, when you think about it, a scooter may not come off as very, really authoritative. authoritative. Right. Yeah. But it's their job to kind of go around and patrol outside of schools and colleges. And they're looking for what they call Eve teasers, which is men who make sexual or lewd comments toward women. And they try to serve as that barrier to protect women. Because Pramila said it in the documentary, you know, the point is to show that there is a police presence so that, as she put it, they can stop this headache of men basically harassing women because they're going to be held accountable for their actions and there's going to be women there to protect other women. Malika, what was your favorite part? I think the part that stood out to me most is the role that Pramila plays. It's something that you hear activists around the world who are advocating for police reform. Mm -hmm. This is what they say they want. They want their police to play a more conciliatory role, a more mediator role, someone who cares about the people in their communities and who then actively tries to help the people in their communities. And that's what she's clearly doing. Mm -hmm. And that's The Take. You can learn more about this issue by reading Kalpana Sharma's book, The Silence and the Storm. Narratives of Violence Against Women in India. We'll link to it on our social media pages. That's at AJ the Take on Instagram and Twitter and The Take Pod on Facebook. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilve with Dina Kispe, Ney Alvarez, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan sound designed this episode and Natalia Aldana is the show's engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is our executive producer, and Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back on Wednesday. <laughs>